this is the historical period we're in, which would be the exile just following. We're introduced to four characters, Daniel and who are the others? And funny thing about those guys, they come back today, okay? Uh, and the big issue was that the, the, uh, the king of the age, the government of the age, was trying to Im- impose upon the children of Israel um, some things that were sort of contrary to their faith, including, as we'll see today, the whole idea of worshiping something other than God. Uh, last week we did chapter 2, which is the first vision. Uh, this is the king has a uh, what's called a night vision or a dream. And there's that statue of four different, actually five different types of metal winding up in clay. And uh, turns out those are symbolic for different periods of history, different empires. And so we're the, the dream sort of lays out, assuming you're going with the time that uh, Daniel's supposedly written in or supposedly talking about, going th- uh, through history for about 400 more years. So today we turn to some of the other material that's in the book of Daniel because Daniel is a mixture of both apocalyptic visions or dreams and these sort of hero stories of where the great heroes of the faith face adversity but because of their faith in God uh, they're able to pull through. And one of these will be the three youth in the fiery furnace. Another one will be what story? Daniel in the lion's den and we have the story of the handwriting on the wall. So there's several of them. So today... Uh, we're going to look at chapter 3, the fiery furnace. And as you read this, there's a couple things right off the bat that just seem a little peculiar, okay? Number one, uh, Daniel is not in the story. He ain't even in the chapter, okay? Uh, He's just nowhere to be found. And many scholars say that, that that's probably an indication that this story originally circulated out there before it got put in the book of Daniel because it it doesn't have anything to do with Daniel but it does have some things in common uh, there's another story Susanna are you familiar with that one if you read the apocrypha the apocryphal version uh, Daniel and the apocrypha has two extra chapters chapters uh, 13 and 14 and there's another story that Daniel's not in which is the story of Susanna so it's probably found in Daniel because for one thing it does share the basic theme and this is the theme that's in all of the material of Daniel. It kind of s- it's one of the things that kind of functions like glue to hold the Daniel material uh, together. And that is that we're resisting this empire's desire to eradicate our faith and make us compromise. The reason it probably is in chapter 2 is that there is a large statue that's in this story. And that's not the same one. The one in chapter 2 was what? The dream. Wasn't real. And it was made of those different kinds of metals. Here it's, it's all of gold, but it's very, very large. So we began with chapter 3, first seven verses, and then we'll stop and talk about it a little bit. King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue. Its height was 60 cubits. Now, how, how big is a cubit? Elbow to fingertip, roughly 18 inches. That would make this about 75, no, about 90 feet tall. Now, the largest statue in the ancient world known was the Colossus of Rhodes, stood just under 100 feet tall. So this is probably hyperbole, because nothing was known of this. But, you know, the idea is it's one big puppy, okay? And its width is six cubits, so it's about nine feet wide. This is a substantial statue. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon when King Nebuchadnezzar sent for all the officials. Uh, They were standing before the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The herald proclaimed aloud, 
you are to fall down and worship the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship, bad things happen, as usual. Uh, shall immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Usually it's you're torn to pieces and, and you and your children and your, your families and all that kind of here. Here we have a little innovative technique. We have the furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, as soon as the... As the uh, as <laughs> heard the sound. Easy for you to say. All the people fell down and worshipped the golden statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, odd story. Um, one of the things that is particularly odd about it is that, is that uh, scholars who know the history, know the area, for example, uh, the Babylonians are among those people who did something really, really good for us. They kept all their records on what? Yeah, cuneiform tablets. Clay, you know, lasts forever, you know, not like paper. So we've actually uh, uncovered several of the libraries of ancient Babylon, and we have the king's records, and we've got some pretty good insight to what happened to stuff. And what we know is nothing even remotely like this, so far as we can tell, ever happened anywhere in the Babylonian period. Uh, there's no record of King Nebuchadnezzar, and we have a lot of his records, uh, ever doing anything like this, or of any Babylonian king. Now, it's not so much the building of the statue. In the ancient world, you built statues all the time, although this was one big statue. The real issue is, what is the underlying issue behind this? It's not the statue. What are they being asked to do? Worship. Okay. Um, that was not part of the Babylonian ethos. Okay. They made no attempt to control people's faith, what they worshipped, what they did not worship. There was never any requirement that you would have to worship their part. Uh, they're not probably as, 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 as loose on that as the Persians were, but it's just not part of the Babylonian culture. Now, it does fit exactly another time period. About 400 years later, 2nd century B.C. This is kind of a recurring theme as you come to each of these stories. Remember that the author is pretty not real accurate about stuff back in the 6th century B.C., but as we come down to the 2nd century, he suddenly gets very, very specific We'll see that more in the dreams to come. And it actually describes something that was that was happened in the second century that a second century ruler actually did. This would be Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Uh, he is the, the king who sparked the Maccabean revolt. He's the king who did a bunch of stuff to basically systematically try to eradicate the Jewish faith and drove to the Jews to a point that they, in fact, did rebel and there, in fact, was a world. That's all history. And we'll see some of that day. One of the things he did, and this was the flashpoint, he set up in Jerusalem, in the temple, at the place where the Jews offer their sacrifice, a pagan idol. A big one. Okay. And required of the Jews that they should worship Zeus. And this seemed to be the flashpoint. I mean... There was all kinds of other stuff going on, but this, the basically it just exploded at that point. He also did this systematic campaign to wipe out. Uh, he had all the, 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 the copies of the law, the Torahs burned that he could find. He forbid them to read Torah. He forbid them to circumcise their children. He forbid them to do any of the practices of their faith. This is all well documented. The books of First and Second Maccabees. Maccabees is as, as, as good a history as you're ever going to find in the ancient world. Okay. 
It's not in our Bible, but it's very good. Second Maccabees, a little looser. I mean, angels are flying everywhere, doing you know, half the stuff in the, in the books done by angels. Here's first Maccabees. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people. Remember Alexander the Great, the founder of the, the, the Greek Empire? What was it he wanted to do? What was the term? Hellenization, where you take the Greek culture and the local culture and you blend it all together and you sort of make, you know, it's, it's all sort of harmonized. Uh, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, is a Hellenistic Greek king uh, from Syria, the Seleucids, and he wants to do this. And that all should give up their particular customs. Now, if we're all going to be one, we can't all be doing different things. So it's real important that we get unified here. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Now, for a Jew, the world is divided into us and them. We're who? The Jews. And they are the Gentiles. So this means everybody else, just like in the story in chapter 3, everybody else bought into it. Many even from Israel gladly, that's an interesting word, accepted his religion. So the scene is everybody's buying into this, even among the Jews themselves. Some people went along with this, but of course not everybody did. They sacrificed to idols. They profaned the Sabbath. They erected a desolating sacrilege. And this is that, that term that's going to come down through the ages and show up in lots of books. Desolating sacrilege. What's a desolation? It wrecks. It destroys everything. Sacrilege. It's against God. And this is that reference to that statue. And they put it on the altar of burnt offering. They offered sacrifice on the altar that was on top of the altar of burnt offering. So they didn't even bother to get rid of the Jewish altar. They just stuck their altar on top of the Jewish altar. It's a real sort of insult. Second Maccabees has a different version. Not long after this, the king sent an Athenian senator, reminder that they're Greeks, to force the Jews to abandon the customs of their ancestors and live no longer by the laws of God, also to profane the temple in Jerusalem and dedicate it to Olympian Zeus. And that's a reference to the statue there. The book of Judith, which is written, written about the same time as Daniel, maybe a little bit earlier, deals with the same crisis, also gives us a little insight. He had been commissioned to destroy all the gods of the land, so that all nations should worship Nebuchadnezzar alone and that all their dialects and tribes should call upon him as a god. Exactly what Daniel 3 says. Now the problem is, of course, we have no record from anything in the Babylonian world, anything remotely like that happened. But it did happen 2nd century with the Antiochus Epiphanes. 2nd century, the Jews are being forced to abandon their religion. Everything that's distinctly Jewish is being attacked. But the ultimate insult, of course, is when you, when you violate the temple and you put an altar and a statue to a pagan god at ground zero of the faith, you're just asking for a fight, which is exactly what they got. So the fiery furnace. Now, this is another one of those deals where uh, people are kind of wondering, uh, this doesn't really make a lot of sense historically. Now, death as a punishment, it's not so much the furnace, it's just that the idea that you're going to be punished for not worshiping who the king wants you to worship. And that's not normal. There are, we have, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of cuneiform tablets about the Babylonian Empire. There's, there's no record of anything remotely like that ever happening. Uh, 
the first known instance historically of anybody in the known world ever asking a people to worship a different god and threatening them with death if they didn't, guess what time period it was? Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century. We know for a fact he did that. It's just well, well, well documented that he did that. He called himself Epiphanes. Now we have a holiday. Right, Epiphany? And Epiphany means manifest, reveal, to make known. Uh, and, it, and here it means God manifest, which is how he saw himself. You know, good ego integrity is what I can say, you know. Yeah. So even the king's name, by Jewish standards, is blasphemy, you know. A guy running around calling him, I'm God made known to the world, you know. Uh, I can see why the Jews had some issues with that. So nothing in the story makes sense Babylonian, but it all makes sense in the, in the, in the period later. Starting at verse 8. You, O king, have made a decree... Now this is one of the, his minions. You, O Crean, have made a, deque a decree that everyone shall fall down and worship the golden statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. There are certain, don't you like sentences that start like that? There's those Jews, those pesky Jews, whom you have appointed over the fairs of the province of Babylon. We got that in chapter 2. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and this is their Hebrew names or their Babylonian names? Babylonian names. You pay no, they pay no heed to you, O king. They do not serve your gods. They do not worship the golden statue that you've set up. There's some interesting uh, uh, writings by Cassius Dio, Cicero, and several other Roman writers. Uh, one of the things that was well known in the ancient world is that the Jews were not like any other people. They were just stubborn, you know. Uh, the Bible says that, too. What they were stubborn about is they would not compromise on their faith. This is well known in the ancient world, and here it pops up. Now, these, everybody falls down but the Jews. We have three singled out. It's the three that we were introduced in chapter one. Uh, these three resist. Uh, I love this picture. Everybody's bowing except the three guys. You know. Okay, here we are. You know, we sort of stick, sticking out right now. But they're refusing to kowtow. They're refusing to bow. They're refusing to participate in what the king has decreed. And again, they, they, they sort of stand, particularly if you're right reading this later, as examples of Jewish resistance. And again, this fits the Maccabees. Uh, you can almost read the book of Daniel on one hand and the book of Maccabees on the other and kind of go back and forth because they're just uh, hand in glove. Matthias, anybody remember who he was? He's the father. He's the guy who starts the Maccabean revolt, and then it's going to be led by several of his sons, Judas and several others. Matthias answered and said in a loud voice, even if all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him and have chosen to obey his commandments, every one of them abandoning their religion, the, the religion of their ancestors, I and my sons and my brothers ain't going to do it, okay? will continue to live with the covenant of the ancestors. Far be it from us to desert the law and the ordinance. We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion to the left or to the right or to the left hand. So these three kind of stand like the Maccabees. They stand there like Matthias, uh, refusing to bow down, refusing to worship, standing fast for their faith. Um, 
And this is a, one of the unifying themes of Daniel. There's a lot of different kind of material. You've got dreams, you've got visions, you've got sort of folk stories about the heroes of the faith. But if you say, what holds all this material together? It's this theme of resistance. They're all, uh, this is kind of woven through the whole book. It lies behind all the stories. Picking up verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, typical Middle Eastern king, you know, mentally unbalanced, uh, <laughs> given the fits of rage and has lots of power, not good. Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego be brought in. I'm so glad my Sunday school teacher taught me that when I was young. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, that you do not worship the golden statue that I've set up? If you do not worship, you shall immediately, this is the third time now, be thrown into the furnace of burning fire. And then this beautiful little line. And who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? And we're all going, well, I can think of one, you know. Uh, and, of course, the, the readers of this, the same thing. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego answered the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fire, furnace of blazing fire, and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. But if not, if God does not deliver us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the golden statue that you've set up. Of course, they will be dead, which would make sense. But either way, the king will not get what he wants. No matter what happens, they're just adamant. Um, now, this charge that the king levels is a reminder of the real issue that, that's in this story behind the whole book. Pressure to compromise the tenets of your faith. Pressure to worship something other than God. Pressure to blend in and do what everybody else is doing. Now, the detail of the statue of gold. Would that remind you of any story in the Old Testament? The golden calf. Probably this is intentional. Uh, any Jew reading this story would immediately go back to the Exodus story, would immediately remember the golden calf story, uh, and it would just scream idolatry uh, and that you do not do this. And then the punchline of this, this section comes from Nebuchadnezzar himself. Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? And of course, that's setting up what is about to follow in the future. Uh, but we have this wonderful sort of scenario that what's actually being depicted is on the one hand, you've got Nebuchadnezzar Epiphanes, who is putting himself forward as, as, as something to be worshipped, at least through his statue. And on the other hand, we've got the God of the Jews. So this is really being set up as a conflict almost between two gods, between two faiths. And the response, of course, of the three young men says to the king, challenge accepted, game on. Okay, they're ready for it, whatever it is. Uh, and that this response, you know, and they let it be known either way the king loses. Either God will save them or he won't. Those are your options. If they're delivered, the king loses. He does not get what he wants. If they're not delivered, the king will still not get what he wants. They will not serve the God. So king, any way this plays out, you're going down. You lose. You simply cannot win with us on this. We are not going to worship that symbol. Uh, and there's a, that sort of interesting subtle reminder here 
by this, even if God does not deliver us, reminder, does God always save you? Are you immune from anything that can happen? No. And so there's that wonderful kind of reminder there. It says, God does not always save deliver. Sometimes the bad things happen. And in the book of Daniel, and in all apocalyptic literature, including the book of Revelation, it is better to lose your life than to surrender your faith. So one of the things we have in Daniel and one of the things we have in, in the book of Revelation is that those who have lost their life for the faith are lifted up. They're martyrs. And they're held in very, very high esteem. Um, and you see that all through Revelation. And it's also a theme in common with Maccabees. Again, we can just read the two side by side. But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved. Now, we're in the second century specifically now. Many in Israel stood firm and were resolved that their hearts not uh, in their hearts not to eat unclean food. So we shift idolatry, the issue of food back and forth. We shift back and forth in these issues in Daniel. We shift back and forth in these issues in the book of uh, in this book as well. They choose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant. Second Maccabees, they were ready to die rather than transgress the laws of their ancestors. Another place in Second Maccabees. Therefore, this is the, the father who's now about to die and is talking about what his death means for his children. Therefore, by bravely giving up my life now, I will show myself worthy of my old age. There's, there's a dignity to this. And leave to the young a noble example of how to die a good death. Any of y'all remember that in the Methodist tradition there was the good death? Uh, Barbara did some stuff. We don't hear much of that anymore. But in the Methodist tradition there was a period of time there where that the part of the Methodist deal was to die a good death. You know, not just to live a good life, but to die a good death. So here his death will make a proclamation. Willingly. Nobly. For the revered and holy laws. Now, verse 19, we now get the part that we're familiar with, which is the going into the furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. He has good visualization of just, just rage. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times hotter than normal. Now, I don't know what the going temperature is for a furnace, but I'm thinking this is hot, okay? Uh, seven is one of those symbolic numbers, which just means... Wholeness, completeness, hot as hot can get. Ordered some of the, strong, the strongest guards of the army. He's not going to get wimps to toss them in. He's going to get the big brutes. To bind Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So the men were bound, still wearing, and the scholars just get amazed at this, their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and their other garments. Now that's a lot of information. One thing that stands out is that this is not Babylonian tar. This is what a Greek dandy would wear in the second century. Okay? And one of the things that was going on in the second century was a lot of the Jews were sort of by. It's interesting that these three are shown as I guess the fact that they work for the government. They would have been wearing the attire that the government would do. But this is not Babylonian attire. By the way, flag those because when they come out of the furnace, we're going to be reminded about this, this clothing. They were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was so overheated. We've got to do this before the furnace burns up, okay? Uh, the raging flames killed the men 
that lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the furnace of blazing fire. It's a beautiful image. You know. the, the big brutes hauling them in, poof, toast, and the three go in. Okay. Now, the image of the fiery furnace would not have been lost on Daniel's audience, particularly if the, if the people are living after the exile. Um, one of the books that's particularly connected with the exile and after is the book of Isaiah, not the opening chapters, which is the exile, Isaiah of the, uh, uh, from several hundred years earlier, but parts of Isaiah were written after the exile. And so these parts are very interesting. Following the exile, the, f the fiery furnace uh, had become a metaphor for suffering. And so the image of a furnace that we've, you know, we've, we've been tested. We've gone through the fire. We have walked in the furnace, you know, uh, almost like a Martin Luther King kind of sermon. This imagery just kind of pops up over and over and became synonymous with the experience of the exile and the experience of living under occupation. So Isaiah 48, from, from the later part of Isaiah, we get this. See, I've refined you. That's a good thing, right? To be refined is to be made pure. I have tested you in the furnace of adversity. There's even some thought by some scholars that the book of Isaiah may have provided the inspiration behind chapter 3 in the original genesis of the story. And the, the Daniel, because if you look at 43, you can almost see where the story could have come from. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, your Savior. So this is part of the literature of the age. Furnace being a symbol for adversity, being a symbol for exile, being a symbol for oppression, and being told by God that, that you can survive this. You can survive it. All the Jews had passed through the furnace of exile, uh, and the story would have been seen, particularly people living, not in the Babylonian period, but later, would have seen this as a metaphor. I mean, they, they look at the story and go, yeah, that's our story. We've gone through that. Particularly this promise of deliverance. Uh, you ever seen pictures of the catacombs in Rome? And going back to the earliest, 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 earliest Christian images. Okay. About the year 200, the first images appear. Guess what one of those <coughs> images is from the year 200? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and the fiery furnace. As a matter of fact, what is the most common image in the catacombs? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Fourth century, Constantine comes in. Now we get high-quality art. We get carved ivory. We get carved stone. What is one of the most common themes of the fourth century high art? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Because this is seen as a story, not about just the three youth. It's seen as a story about oppression, about suffering, about the danger of death, and about how God can step in and intervene. It's particularly common on sarcophaguses because it's seen as almost a resurrection metaphor. You go into the end of the fire, you go into death, yet God will bring you out whole and intact on the other side. Verse 24. Then the king was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, now wait a minute. I'm not a math genius, but we only tossed in three. Why do I see four? He's looking into the fire, and he's saying, weren't there only three men that we bound and threw into the fire? Now I see four. Unbound. 
walking around, just strolling around, having a good time in the fire, and they're not hurt. This ain't right. This is not what we intended for this to happen. The fourth has the appearance of a god. Interesting line, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace that's burned everybody up, but you know, uh, the blazing fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, get out here. We need to talk about this. What in the world is going on? Come here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and everyone saw that the fire, drum roll, gotta love the line, had not had any power over the bodies of those men. Nebuchadnezzar did his worst. Seven times hotter than normal. They are untouched. The hair on their heads. Unsinged. Their tunics. That's all that stuff they've been wearing. Not harmed. And not even the smell of fire. Not a whiff of smoke. Came from them. So it's just. Underlining over and over and over. He did his worst. It's had no effect. In the story. Everything is hyperbole. Everything is over the top the prep of the furnace seven times hotter we get the strongest men not only are they just not harmed but the hair the clothing even the smell is not there the story just goes out of its way to say they are totally totally spared uh and now insult to injury to the king what do they what does he see inside the fire they're doing a little jig you know <laughs> you know walking around uh he's he's had them bound and cast now they're unbound and they're walking. So it's the exact antithesis of everything he could do. It's not just the fire. It's the fact that they were bound too. And then the punchline, they're immune, impervious to anything Nebuchadnezzar has got in his arsenal. Bring it on, Nebuchadnezzar. None of it is going to have any effect whatsoever. The king is shocked to see not three, but four men in the furnace. Uh, the fourth person with them who looks like a god. Now, th the commentaries say basically this probably is intended for the reader or the one who hears this story to understand that this is an, in fact an image for a guardian angel. Uh, and it's probably also a reminder of the, the, the Exodus story. I'd forgotten about this in Exodus. But the Exodus story, we have a guardian angel who protects the children of Israel as they go out and cross and come over to the promised land. It's Exodus 23. I'm going to send an angel in front of you. To guard you on the way. And to bring you to the place that I have prepared. And in the very next sentence. The very next scene. The book of Daniel underscores it. That probably in fact this is what is intended. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar said. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now isn't that an interesting statement. From the guy who's been trying to get everybody to worship his statue. Uh. Who has sent his angel. There you have it. That's the Exodus metaphor. And delivered his servants. Who trusted in him. Why were they delivered? Because they trusted in God. There's your little sermonette message there. They disobeyed. The king's command. They yielded up their bodies. Classic Maccabean kind of imagery. Rather than serve and worship any god except their own God. For there is no other God who is able to, this is all supposedly from the king, there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way, 
Then the king, and we always have this reversal at the end. You know, it's always bad, 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 and then we reverse everything at the end, kind of like Job. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, wait a minute. Do you remember last week? At the end of chapter 2, who got promoted? Yeah. And in chapter 1, who had been put over the whole kingdom? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel stayed and Babylon with the king. They're already the princes. Another indication of this story probably circulates separate. Uh, and there's those little, little rough edges. Okay, the king praises the gods of the Jews, and this is clearly what appears to be a Jewish creed, kind of like, like our apostles' creed. God sent his angel to rescue his servants. Why? Because they trusted in him. So the takeaway for this is, what should you do? Trust God. They defile the king's command. This is odd words coming from the king himself, don't you think? Uh, they yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship the God, any God except their own. And then, again, their promotion is another reminder that the story probably had a life before it got in this book. The story ends with a familiar reversal. The three get rewarded. The king now declares that anybody who does anything against the Jews bad things happen to them. And we'll see this repeatedly in the book. It's, it's that sort of uh, the turning of events on top of the head. Why? Punchline, because no other God can save in this way. So the story now stands for this point. That basically this is your takeaway. God is a God who delivers. He delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt at the Exodus. He will deliver it again and again. And that is the God you should serve, not some God that's propped up. Now, you probably know uh, that there's two versions of the book of Daniel. There's the book in the Protestant Bible that, that we have. That's 12 chapters. And there's some extra material that are in the Apocrypha or the Catholic Orthodox version. We have chapters 13 and 14. We also have additions. And one of the places that we have massive additions is chapter 3. Chapter 3 in the Apocrypha is three times as long as the one that we have. So we're not going to do all that. But I thought you might be interested in a little bit of this stuff because some of it, some of it's kind of interesting. Uh, we have the prayer of Azariah, who's also one of the, he's Abednego. He's the third one. And as, as the prayer gets noted out, there's no connection to the book of Daniel, and there's no connection to anything anywhere. It's basically a psalm, but it's attributed to him. Uh, and in this case, it's a confession of sin. And then we have the song of the three young Jews. This one's more, more relevant for us. That in this version, they're, when they're in the furnace, not only are they walking around, they're singing. And they sing basically what is a psalm. And it gives some additional detail to the story. This picking up there. Now the king's servants who threw, uh, who th threw them in kept stoking the furnace with naphtha. Know what naphtha is? Yeah. Uh, pitch, petroleum product, tow. Look, that's not even in a contemporary dictionary, you know. But it's another, it's another form of uh, a petroleum project. And brush. Ever hear of Greek fire? Greek, Greek fire? The Greeks back in several centuries B.C. created a weapon where they could hurl a ball of fire from one ship to another, and then the fire adhered 
and, and it just, I mean, it was terrified everybody because it destroyed ships. And it was made out of naphtha, pitch, tow, and brushwood. So this is, this is the depiction of what's called Greek fire. And for, what, 1,500 years, nobody knew how to make Greek fire. And then a couple of centuries ago, somebody figured it out and was able to recreate it. The flames poured out above the furnace 49 cubits. Everything just gets accelerated. 75 feet, this big fire. Spread out and burned those Chaldeans who were caught near the fire. The other story was just the ones who tossed them in. This is anybody standing nearby. But the angel of the Lord, no, it's no longer just we see a fourth figure. We get to see the angel come. The angel of the Lord came down into the furnace to be with Azariah and his companions. Now, this version of the story, Azariah is the leader. It's not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's Abednego, Azariah. And drove the fire, and, and, and I love this. The angel comes down to be with Azariah's companion. The angel drove the fiery flame out of the furnace and made the inside of the furnace as though a moist wind were whistling through it. Now, if you are Bedou, if you are from the desert, what is more refreshing in the desert than a moist breeze? You know, uh, The fire did not touch them at all and caused them no pain or distress. This is then followed by a long hymn of praise that has no connection with the book of Daniel, the three young men. Uh, I've saved you that. You can look it up on the Internet. Except at the very end, we have this. Then the three, with one voice, praised and glorified and blessed God in the furnace. Blessed the, bless the Lord, sing praise to him, and highly exalt him forever. And now we're going to cut some new territory. For he has rescued us from Greek word. Greek word. What is Hades in Greek? The abode of the dead okay. saved us from the power of death, almost like Paul in Romans, and delivered us from the midst of the burning fiery furnace and the midst of the fire. He has delivered us. And so that becomes the version, not in our Bible, but it's in the Apocrypha. So next week, you're going to be ready for another dream?